Welcome to the Juno Report, brought to you by Guide Dog Users Incorporated, a special interest affiliate of the American Council of the Blind. The Juno Report is a monthly audio magazine featuring all things guide dogs, training programs, and items of general interest to guide dog teams. We welcome your feedback, ideas, and suggestions. Get in touch with the Juno Report by emailing junoreport at guidedogusersinc.org. Again, that email address is Juno, J-U-N-O, report at guidedogusersinc.org. I love my dog. And now, let's get on with today's program of the Juno Report. And welcome to the latest episode of the GDUI Juno Report. I'm your host, Deb Cook-Lewis, and we've got a great program today. The Kentuckiana Guide Dog Users brings us this program, and we thank them so much for letting us air this, and we hope you'll find it interesting. It's a discussion with three major guide dog schools, and uh, mostly about admission and uh, just some of those kinds of things. Who's right for a guide dog? So uh, this is a great introduction to guide dogs if you know someone who is thinking about getting a guide dog or if you are thinking about getting one. Uh, We, as always, edit this material down to make it fit into our podcast, so you'll notice the transitions are a little odd. One odd transition is that uh, Lucas Frank Uh, comes late to the meeting. So we hear from uh, guiding eyes and guide dogs, and then we hear from seeing eye kind of at the end. So uh, it is a little bit odd, but if you were there, it would have made sense. Let's go right to our program, introduced by Terry Turlow from the uh, Kentuckiana Guide Dog Users. I'm Terry Turlow, Vice President of Guide Dog Users of Kentuckiana. We uh, are chapter with members in Kentucky and in the part of Indiana that is fairly close right across the river from Louisville. And on behalf of GDUKI and the affiliates with which we are associated, of course, the Kentucky Council of the Blind and Guide Dog Users International, I am delighted to present three distinguished speakers from from three guide dog, uh, premier guide dog schools. Um, we will have <clears throat> Chuck Ferruja from Guide Dogs for the Blind, Michael Goring from Guiding Eyes for the Blind, and Lucas Frank from Seeing Eye. We'll, and they will uh, talk to you each for a few minutes about the acceptance requirements of their schools and then we will open for questions. I know that Carla has mentioned, and I've seen it come up before, we get calls saying, hey, my 92-year-old grandmother has lost a lot of her vision, and she has trouble getting from, you know, her bathroom to her bedroom. Probably she needs a guide dog. <laughs> well, you know, that that's a no-brainer. But um various schools do various things to address a wide variety of issues uh, that students may experience in addition to blindness. And I 
I know that our presenters will address things like multiple disabilities and how much walking a person needs to do and various other kinds of requirements. So with no further ado, I'd like to introduce our first presenter, Chuck Faruja from Guide Dogs for the Blind. Thank you, Chuck. Good morning, Terry, and thank you. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be with everybody today. Uh, I am briefly going to touch on some of the things that we consider at Guide Dogs for the Blind in response to an application for training. So our process begins with an application uh, or perhaps even just a telephone call to our support center and then specifically to our admissions team. Uh, we've divided it according to uh, last names. So we have three staff who receive those calls and provide an overview of what we're looking for uh, in a prospective candidate. Uh, the goal is twofold, really, to make a person better aware of what they can look forward to with a guide dog. Many people who are applying, uh, as the example you cited, suggest maybe have never had a dog before, have had limited uh, contact with a dog. So we talk about what life with a guide dog would be like with a dog in general, but specifically with a guide dog. Uh, obviously, a person would have to have a practical need. So if someone is legally blind, um, uh, they would potentially qualify for a guide dog. What we would be interested in knowing is how well adjusted are they to their, their situation or circumstance. If a person is newly declared blind, obviously he or she has to uh, learn the skills, the strategies for independent travel, uh, presumably with a long cane, and put it to practice for a period of time. Um, a person um, who is an independent traveler would also be able to integrate his or her senses so that um, their ability to make determinations about when to cross a street after properly assessing how traffic is controlled at a particular intersection and can do it with confidence and regularity uh, regardless of the conditions, that would be an important qualifying standard. Um, we would make the distinction between what the role of the guide dog is versus the role of the handler of that guide dog. So what is the dog uh, trained to do and what is the expectation as you learn the skills to, in effect, become a trainer, if you will, in, a bit, in addition to being a handler. That handoff to you as a guide dog handler takes place in training. So you would learn that series of commands or those commands that the dog knows well uh, for directional purposes, um, as well as to maybe hasten their pace or slow their pace. Um, a dog is trained, a guide dog is trained typically, and this is true for, for all of the schools, to walk in a straight line at a consistent pace, to be focused on uh, his or her tasks, uh, to avoid obstacles that can be avoided, to stop for those that it can't, and then obviously to be aware of elevation changes and primarily curbs. The handler's job is to be able to monitor what the, per what the dog is doing. And so it can reinforce those things that it wants the dog to continue to do and then uh, manage or discontinue uh, the things that they don't want the dog to do, such as distractedness for dogs, people, sense, whatever it may be that may be affecting their focus or purpose in terms of their travel. In terms of a person's physical capabilities, uh, to your point, Terry, uh, the expectation would be that you'd be getting out on a regular basis, that you have purposeful 
need for a guide dog. You may have all of the practical skills. You may have a practical need. But if your habit is to stay home uh, most days and do very little activity, then it would beg the question, um, why would you need a guide dog? And what would you do with a dog that has all of this energy and skill and uh, needs to exercise them both to remain competent and also to have a, a fulfilling life of its own? So do I have those um, do I have those needs and expectations with regard to my personal life? We look at it in two contexts. One is coming to train with a guide dog. So you would be visiting one of, uh, one of the campuses of the schools that you might attend, and you would be there for a set period of time. And so you'd have to ask yourself, how do I feel about going away from home for a set period of time? What are my responsibilities at home? Do I have the skills and stamina, the physical fitness to go through what can be a very arduous course, not only physically, but emotionally and mentally? You would be in a position or in a situation where you're going to be meeting a lot of strangers. Obviously, it'd be, it would be a very welcoming environment, but nevertheless, you would be out of your comfort zone. You'd have to ask yourself, can I readily transfer the skills that I know at home? Maybe I am a route traveler. I'm used to going to these three places. Um, what am I going to do if I visit uh, a distant place, a place I've never been before? Obviously, our expectation isn't that you would become a master at route travel in one of our two campus areas, and the other schools presumably would be the same, uh, and other schools uh, by extension. But you'd still have to have the skills to adapt to new and various environments that you can translate back to your home area, obviously, with greater confidence. Terry, you brought up the prospect of what other needs might I have. Um, I use a support cane uh, to travel independently in, con in, uh, in conjunction with a folding or rigid long cane. Are they going to be able to adapt my training at Guide Dogs for the Blind? Uh, to be able to work with uh, a support cane with the dog that I'll be issued? Uh, obviously, the answer there is yes, we can do that. And we do that all the time. I mentioned the admissions uh, staff and their role in terms of providing information about uh, applying for a guide dog. I've alluded to a person being legally blind, that he or she be well adjusted to it, that they've adapted to uh, travel requirements based on the formal skills that they've received. In addition, they would be coordinating or integrating their uh, auditory sense with their other senses in order to make informed, safe, and consistent decisions about crossing the street. What if, I, what if I'm calling to apply and I don't have those skills? You're very likely going to receive advice uh, to perhaps pursue formal mobility training through either a state or private agency locally. Um, if you're a veteran, then you might be um, eligible uh, for services at one of the VA rehabilitation facilities. Our organization, Guide Dogs for the Blind, has a one-week intensive orientation and mobility immersion course with the intention of providing um, uh, if you will, remedial instruction or to expand on the instruction that you were able to receive in the past. Let's say that you um, 
maybe had formal mobility training several years ago, you feel like your skills could meet or could use some improvement, excuse me. Uh, we provide that service in advance of perhaps qualifying for a guide dog. Where I'm pointing uh, with all of this is that our goal is to try and meet your goal as, as a prospective guide dog user. So very typically, that is one of the challenges that we see uh, for not being able to qualify for a guide dog. I simply haven't got the skills to get out confidently and independently to do so. In terms of age, you mentioned um, the prospect of somebody's grandmother suddenly need, needing a guide dog. Guide dogs for the blind doesn't have an upper age limit. Do we serve people in their 80s, perhaps even in their 90s? It's not unheard of. We do have clients that are in their 80s and are very active, obviously. Uh, the same is um, true for all of the other age groups, of course, or other decades. We will typically not serve somebody who is an early teen. When you think about the responsibility of having a guide dog, you have to think about how much autonomy does a person have? How much agency does he or she have? Obviously, as adults, we all have that autonomy and agency to make decisions for ourselves. If I were a minor and I'm living at home and there may be certain restrictions or there may be certain interference, uh, interferences that we might observe later on, then we might say that this isn't an appropriate time for you to have a dog because you're not going to have uh, total independence of caring for, working, and using that guide dog. So typically we're going to serve somebody who's uh, maybe in their late teens, um, very not, un uh, not common, but uh, certainly from 18 years and beyond. Um, for a person who hasn't had a dog, we want them to be aware of what the responsibilities are like. There are lots of positives, obviously, with respect to companionship. It can be a fantastic icebreaker. It's a great way to socialize and be with people. On the other hand, there are some uh, negatives. Maybe I want to be more anonymous or I don't want people to constantly interact with me about my dog. We want people to have a true understanding of that. Um, we want people to be aware that uh, having a guide dog um, may have its challenges with respect to access. Uh, we live in a time now where lots of people are contending that their dog is a service dog, and it may create um, a less than positive reception when you may go to a public place or to use public transportation, both of which you have uh, every right to do. Um, you know, I think when you're thinking about a guide dog, um, a consideration might be, Yes, there are all of these positives, but I also have to get up in the morning and feed and water my dog and relieve it. There is the daily exercise. I have to work the dog. I have to pick up after the dog. So you'll have that kind of an immersion when you come to class. At Guide Dogs, once a person uh, speaks with the admissions uh, representative, they'll complete a telephone uh, interview, which would lead to an interview ultimately with me or with one of my seven colleagues. We're all field service managers. Our goal is to provide that in-person home interview uh, so that we can meet the person where he or she lives. Very typically, we get a chance to meet their family. We get a, we get a chance to see the context of their lives. What's the environment in which they live? You could have all of the skills and the motivation to work with a guide dog, but you may live in an environment 
that may not be conducive to it right now. Uh, when you think about, do I have ready access to sidewalks? Or is the area where I live, where there aren't sidewalks, safe and accessible? If a person has all the skills, but they say, I need a ride, or I have to get to a place where I could effectively work my dog, it may not be practical at this point. So part of the goal, part of the purpose of going to a person's home is to assess the area in which they live, to get them know, get to know them a little bit better, perhaps their family, the people they live with, and to create an understanding of what this responsibility is all about. Um, in addition, we get a chance to assess their independent travel skills, and that will inform the kind of match that we think may be appropriate here in terms of pace, in terms of a person's ability to monitor and manage a dog, the environment they live in, and uh, other factors that may influence the kind of dog that we think would ultimately suit them. We'll also assess um, through a kind of simulated manner what it would be like to work with a dog for them. We'll give them some basic instruction. I mentioned those commands, forward, left, right, giving them a chance to understand what a dog does for them that a cane can't. For example, clearing obstacles, including ones overhead. Uh, what represents an elevation change for a dog, where a sidewalk may be heaved because of roots from a tree, things of that sort, where they may jam a cane or very typically catch a sole or a toe of their shoe. Um, so the kinds of benefits that a dog might provide will also simulate what it's like when a dog gets distracted and how that has to be managed. And through that, uh, we'll get a, a greater understanding, again, of what kind of a match we can make with the person. So in, in general, or to wrap up what I've been saying here, when we start the process, we're looking at, uh, does a person have a practical need? Yes, they are legally blind. They could benefit from uh, a mobility aid, whether it's a cane or a dog, if they, do, if they see uh, that as the means that they want to uh, travel independently with. Do they have the uh, auditory skills to effectively and safely direct the dog? Do they have the ability physically um, and mentally and emotionally to manage the dog, to understand these are the techniques that we use at our school or whatever other school they may apply to? Um, do they have the commitment because of their personal lifestyle, to work the dog on a regular basis, getting out 20, 30 minutes a day minimum, and probably much more than that. If you go to and from work, maybe a midday walk with my dog. I would like to next present <clears throat> Michael Goring from Guiding Eyes for the Blind. Michael? Thank you, Terry. Um, and thank you, Chuck. You've uh, outlined that quite well and covered a lot of ground. Um, Essentially, it's, you know, a lot of what uh, Chuck uh, spoke to is going to be echoed by, by the other programs. Um, of course, the first, first requirement uh, any of the schools are going to be looking for is that someone is, in fact, legally blind. Uh, at Guiding Eyes, as far as age limit goes, uh, we will entertain applications as young as age 15, uh, However, an individual would not be actually serviced until they've turned 16. Um, echoing what Chuck had to say there, you know, it's, it's very rare uh, that someone of age 16 is um, mature enough and, and responsible uh, to have a dog. It's, it's a big you know, taking on a guide dog as a mobility tool, learning 
um, transitioning from a white cane to a guide dog is a big lift for anyone and certainly for a young person. So those served in that younger age bracket are certainly um, far and few between. However, there are definitely some that, that do qualify. Um, and like, um, like guide dogs, we don't have an upper age limit. Um, and at uh, Guiding Eyes, we do have our specialized training program, which uh, began decades ago as our deafblind program that has evolved through the years um, to be a program that serves individuals with multiple disability, um, one of which uh, would be blindness. That program gives us the ability to work with even some of our, our graduates whom have had dogs from us for many years and due to age are experiencing some additional um, physical challenge. So with that, um, with that specialized training program, we are able to serve uh, people there and perhaps uh, in some cases, not even transitioning somebody into that program full time, um, but able to tap those resources for people who may need some a mobility cane, for instance, or a stability cane um, and that type of thing. Um, people do have to have participated uh, in orientation and mobility instruction. Um, you know, knowledge of, of at least the basics of that capable and of demonstrating safe, safe travel. Um, that, you know, we get asked that question a lot from orientation mobility specialists, as well as from uh, individuals applying themselves as, you know, do, you, do I have to, you know, how, how good do my white cane travel skills have to be? And, and for some people, some people are very, very proficient, and that isn't necessarily a uh, evidence that somebody's going to do well with a, with a dog. Um, a guide dog is a very different type of mobility tool. Um, with a guide dog, you do not have the same tactile information that you would for a white cane. So we will see that uh, people whom, who are really proficient cane travelers uh, can have a difficult time transitioning to a guide dog and in some cases aren't comfortable. Uh, in some cases, a guide dog may actually, I've seen it, you know, we've all seen it, those of us that work in the field um, have seen it actually slow people down. So uh, guide dogs aren't always the answer. Um, and uh, to, to back up to that point, we're not looking for necessarily um, the only the most proficient of white cane travelers. However, people do have to be able to demonstrate that they have the basics of white cane travel knowledge. I know where I am. I know where I need to get, go. And I have the ability to execute that. Um, generally looking for, uh, similar to what Chuck outlined, uh, a two or three uh, established routes. These can be destination routes um, or they can be exercise routes. Uh, somewhere in the range of 20 to 30 minute routes um, so that people have the ability to go out and, and do have the ability to show dogs some variety within their work. Um, that's something that we do try to uh, sort of flush out early on in the process is are people rote travelers or are people adventurers and explorers? Um, dogs will fall into either of those categories, some dogs. Uh, some guide dogs like enjoy rote travel. They like to be able to go out and knock out the same the same route day in and day out. 
and that's great. Um, there's other dogs that um, are very bored by that and they will drop drop pace and lose enthusiasm and interest in the routes if that's all they have to do. So that's really important for us to gauge early on the type of travel that people enjoy um, and to match that's part of the matching process is matching someone up to that. So both 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 applicants could be good candidates. It's just we want to we want to flush that out early on. Um, I won't repeat uh, all the ground that that Chuck covered, but um, at Guiding Eyes, we do have our specialized training program uh, also. Um, that is a rather unique program. Uh, we put a lot of energy into that. That has it's a de dedicated department that has five instructors working up there. Um, and that works specifically with multiple disabilities. So um, the qualifications there are a little bit different. Um, people do have still have to have those basics. Um, they have to have destinations. They have to have um, uh, the ability to get out and about. You know, we're not looking, uh, you know, someone that calls in as is outlined earlier. That's, you know, I, I would go out a lot more if I had a guide dog. And we can't go on that speculation. We need to see some evidence that people are active and want to be active and have the ability to be active. Um, so that's uh, a specialized training program. Again, that has, so if there's, you know, anybody knows of people, if there's, uh, you know, looking for a program that can work with that, you know, with a specialized population, um, we have that program. And then Guiding Eyes also does have a running guides program, which is a relatively new program. Uh, in the last uh, four years, uh, that program has gained a, a lot of popularity. And uh, we have a lot of people applying to Guiding Eyes for that uh, specific program. Uh, qualifications for that program, um, people do not have to have been a previous guide dog handler. So if they are have not been, uh, they will go through regular guide, you know, standard guide dog training just as everyone else would. And the running guides component is an add-on. Uh, basically to that. Um, so to qualify for the running guides piece, however, um, there too, much like the, the 92 year old grandma we're talking about earlier, um, somebody coming in saying, you know, boy, I would like to become a runner. Um, to qualify for the running guides program as it is right now, um, we're looking for people that are established, you know, people that are established runners. So they've done sighted guide running, they've done tethered running, um, they have established running routes. And that, so that's a qualification coming into it. Um, similar to the regular program, people are, have already have routes and that type of thing. Um, now we have done some retrofitting through the years with existing graduates um, that takes um, Basically, field work, field staff go out and, and we'll work with existing graduates on some of them fitting, you know, checking for appropriateness and that type of thing. Um, but that's all, all done on an individualized basis. And of course, with um, the current situation uh, with COVID, that's made the you know, getting out into the field and working people with people face to face and that type of thing is challenging all of the schools and, and us in the same way and being able to do some of that retrofitting. Hopefully, um, we get to the other side of this and, and we can resume in that department. Um, but that guiding, uh, guiding eyes, we do have the running guides program. We have a specialized running harness that a lot of our graduates are using for both um, both hiking, uh, hiking off trail, um, 
type work as well as running guides work. So um, that's a little bit about that. Um, so another piece um, just to touch on too, is that we, students or prospective student, um, we do also discuss early on in the process, um, training methodology and training philosophies that are used. There has been a shift in the, in the guide dog world over the last uh, couple of decades um, where you know, there are, there are graduates past guide dog handlers out there that have, you know, trained under a much different, what we often refer to as a traditional um, training methodology, which was, for lack of a better term, kind of more, a little more heavy handed, um, kind of a do it or else methodology. Um, a lot of guide dog handlers through the years have noticed this shift. Um, certainly at GDB and at Guiding Eyes, we're incorporating um, clicker training and food reward is uh, incorporated into the training. So that's something that's very important that people, um, as they consider, and, and, this is, and especially some of those that are coming from other schools where they may have not experienced that um, training methodology, some find that uh, a bit odd. Some may have been with instructors in the past that were told, don't you ever, ever you know, hand treat your dog. And now here we are um, encouraging people to do that on a very free, very regular basis and uh, pumping out treats at a pretty high rate. So that's something too that is, is critical is that people do have to be on board because you know us as instructors having used that training um, for the dog that needs to be kept up. And if suddenly somebody um, is trying to change training methodologies uh, after placement, that's not going to work. And we're going to end up with the dog shutting down on people. So that's something that's important. And then as uh, Chuck touched on too, and I think just to put a little extra ad, uh, emphasis on that, uh, is the lifestyle change. And that um, uh, having come from the service dog world and, and uh, in the guide dog field, that's something that um, we often talk about the, you know, the, the positives of receiving this dog and this is going to open so many doors for you and you're going to be out there. There is this, it certainly opens things up, but that can be for some individuals uncomfortable. You are going to be approached. Whereas, you know, with a cane, you may slip onto an elevator or move about in public and nobody has anything much to say to you. And suddenly you have um, one of these, uh, gorgeous labs and people are drawn to them and they're telling you all their lab stories. And um, for some people that's great and it's invited, but for other people, it's very uncomfortable. And over the course of the day, it can get old, uh, quite frankly, when you're continually used to moving through society quite uh, smoothly and without interruption. And now suddenly you're being approached by people and asked about your dog and um, it may be fun for the first uh, couple times in the first few weeks, but after a while that can lose its charm. So that's something that people have to be um, aware of as well um, as the access issue. And that most likely if you have a guide dog at some point in your, uh, in your time with that guide dog, you are going to experience being denied access and being uh, able to uh, address that in a proper way. Um, ride share you well at some point uber driver is going to drive away from you or lift driver is going to drive away from you um, and being able to address and cope with that as well so just just want to touch on those points too is that is stuff that does come up and um, it's something definitely to consider so with that i'll i'll bow out and and we can uh and take questions
This is Deb from ACB Radio. And I know that um, GDB and possibly other schools as well have like uh, what they call like a companion program where they give dogs to youth or whatever. But has has either of the schools, have you thought about um, people who could maybe still care for a dog, but who for whatever reasons, age or health or whatever, are not able to or are choosing not to work a dog anymore. Is there any possibility that some program like that, especially with a number of baby boomers aging, could um, potentially include um, those folks, us, us coming folks? This is Chuck uh, with Guide Dogs for the Blind with GDB. Uh, it is something that we are considering it's not uncommon for us to refer to us to a team currently that is semi-retired for some of the reasons you're suggesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I go to my uh, church or I go to have dinner with some friends or I go to a particular place. I may be dropped off curbside and I still work my dog into the building and perhaps to a place where I meet somebody. That's a fairly common phenomenon. We're seeing more of that. To your point, uh, Terry, are we going to be seeing uh, people who want to have the companionship of a dog and uh, may have uh, a limited uh, number of places that they might go, that 20 to 30 minutes that we made allusions to earlier? Uh, We are looking at that. Obviously, safety is paramount. So you need a dog that is very easily managed, right? So when you think about even simple things like taking the dog out to relieve, do I have the capacity to do that comfortably and safely? Mm -hmm. So we are giving this consideration. And yes, um, this is going to be a matter that's, uh, that is already on the horizon. And we're, we're trying to consider how to approach and and, uh, respond to it. So this is Mike. I'll expand on your question or on the answer. Um, At Guiding Eyes, we we do have the youth program. Um, That is actually new since COVID, um, where we are uh, partnering um, youth with with, uh, some companion dogs. um, And that's a, a new program. It has been discussed um, with the um, particularly with the aging process and companion dogs, um, but it's not a program um, that's that's developed this time. But it has been discussed um, as something that could be do with some of our our dogs that that you know, don't make it as guides necessarily, but would be appropriate as companions. So in discussion, but nothing firm at this time. This is Chuck again. We didn't really get into the values and benefits of having a dog uh, beyond the practicality of working a guide dog and what the expectations are. Obviously, companionship is uh, invaluable, right? You think about, um, I recently had a situation where a person's retired guide was euthanized and um, her active guide is already eight years of age. So this dog lived to 14 plus years and she made the point more than once that um, there isn't a real understanding for pet owners that this is not a pet dog. This is a more profound relationship. And so I think that's what we're alluding to here. It's, um, you know, I've had the experience with dogs serially, or I've only had one guide dog, but the right. benefits that have accrued right. are overwhelmingly positive. Right. I love the companionship. I love the fact that I'm able to do, uh, certain things with my dog. I mentioned, um, you know, some some uh, limited exercises that a person might do with his or her dog. It may be that I can circle the block or square the block, whatever it may be. Yeah. But 
the value of having a dog goes well beyond the practical um, of being able to do the travel with the uh, the tool, for lack of a better word, that I choose. So um, I think that's what we're trying to capture here too. Yeah. So can I can I have a dog beyond those uh, days when I'm an active traveler uh, on a daily basis for that companionship and friendship? And I think that's what. Yeah. Michael and I are alluding to. We're looking at that because it does parallel uh, these programs for youth in anticipation of maybe getting to a point of having uh, and uh, working a guide dog. That's Mike. I'm the what what Chuck's talking about is just so critical, and this is part of the discussion behind the scenes. Is that you know oftentimes for individuals who have used, as you say, who are serial users, um, guide dog handlers through the years. Um, and they come to a time when it's time to, and and, it, and this can be such a serious issue when someone has been a, had the had the company of not only the use of this, for lack of a better term, mobility tool, um, but they've also had the companionship of a dog, and then somebody retirement and age and facing additional limitations and and facing all of that and then at the same time having to retire out their in quotes last guide dog that can be a lot of emotional uh, things coming at somebody at one time and uh, so that's part of the conversation that goes on is is there a way as as guide dog schools that we can be um, a part of a solution there is to help help soften that and help uh, even if people don't have the physical capability they one, once had to utilize a guide dog that they still can benefit from the emotional support and, and the companionship of a dog. Excellent. Kathy? This is Terry. And I wonder if both of you could address um, as we look at the aging population, um, there's the person who really cannot work a dog is the one that we've been talking about. But there's also the person who is kind of a between person who maybe can't do a 30 minute fast walk, but who could do a 30 minute, you know, slow amble. And I always hear about real high spirited, you know, strong young dogs. Uh, and I've certainly experienced um, six or seven of those, but are there some, Dogs that might not qualify for a program because they are too slow, too ambly. Uh, I don't mean distracted. I mean just too relaxed and yet might be able to work well with an older person like this. Yeah, I mean, our, I would I would say that's the, you know, we, we look for those dogs within our program. We have, a, you know, as does GDP, we have a very wide range um, of dogs, everything from that dog that's going to step out at you know, 4.0 plus and, and just wants to, you know, wants to knock out eight miles a day and down to those dogs that are, are much more sedentary and not quite as um, enthusiastic, let's say, um, you know, some of those, a lot of times those dogs with that more, you know, that, that ambling um, one foot in front of the other dog um, will find its way oftentimes into our specialized training program, because a lot of times we're looking for very, uh, kind of the slow movers and dogs that aren't real um, typical of what you'd find in a, in a young dog. And often, and the, and that specialized training program, the time in program is longer. So those dogs, um, rather than, you know, a five or six month uh, training to period, they're in, they're often in training for 
closer to a year. So when they're going out the door, they're an older dog already. So a little more settled. And that's part of that equation too, is there's, there's just a, anybody that's have anybody that on the call that's been a, a handler knows the difference between an eight, you know, 17 or 18 month old dog, uh, guide dog, even trained and, you know, a dog that's closer to 30 months, let's say, or, you know, over 24 months, you know, there, there's just a lot of maturing that happens in that time, generally speaking. So, um, so yeah, all those things can play a factor in, in selecting a dog that would be appropriate for that lifestyle. And that, that, that's kind of what we had a program some years ago we had started. It was called the, um, fit program that was kind of customized. Um, we, we ended up merging into the specialized training program, but we were looking at the, kind of those intermediate, um, people that were, were slowing down a bit, but were still active to some extent. So, um, so yeah, we're always trying to find, you know, there's, there's just a, just like with the dogs, there's a wide range of, of uh, people out there looking for dogs and, and various needs. Now, no, no two handlers are the same. No two handlers needs are the same. And the same is true of the types of dogs that we raise and, and train. Are you all seeing more um, because of COVID a lot more dog distraction issues? Have you all been, um, you know, working with, I guess, people who are starting to run into that sort of thing. Um, I'm not sure I'm really getting this question across very well, but I'll let you answer. <laughs> Hi, Kathy. You know, to marry your question with uh, Terry's, I think what Michael was alluding to is if we were looking at a prospective match, so before a person has a dog, and he's absolutely right, when you think about making a choice, and I'm, I'm addressing people who may have never had a dog before. Guiding eyes, guide dogs for the blind, the seeing eye, several other schools have been selectively breeding their dogs for many, many generations. And so we do have this uh, rather broad array of dogs to choose from. And we would take into consideration what you're alluding to in terms of manageability of the dog or distractibility level. Um, for a person... You know, to answer your question directly, and I think Michael would concur, what I am finding is that people have been really restricting their level of activity, and, and that point has already been made for safety's sake, right? We think about social distancing. We're watching with COVID now that it's rearing its head again and uh, that we're seeing the numbers mount. So we have not um, – I have not had specific – a specific number of uh, dog distraction concerns that would make me aware that that is a growing issue. However, you are anticipating what we're anticipating. That is, as things calm down, as we get to the other side of this, as people resume their lives, there is a very good chance that we're going to see that see that out of out of uh, lack of practice. And so, I would say that. Well, certainly guide dogs for the blind, and, and I would, I would uh, extend that the other schools are anticipating this. And so we will be providing uh, more support, both telephonically and likely in person as well, to help smooth these things out. Michael made a very good point about age and uh, the developmental maturity of a dog, right? What we're seeing, what the other schools are seeing is that that in this complex uh, business of ours or operations of ours, where you're breeding dogs in anticipation of demand two years down the road, we have had 
a major disruption in our business model, right? In terms of being able to bring students to class at the same numbers and to provide them with a dog. So maybe this is a hidden upside that we're seeing more mature dogs that may not go out until they're three years old, or maybe even a little older than that. Um, we, and probably the other schools as well, will reissue a guide dog that may be uh, between three and four years of age. It might have another five or six active working years ahead of it, but because it's entered another phase of its life, it's a confident guide. And then we've assessed what the dog is like temperamentally. We don't have to have the concerns that you're citing that this dog will suddenly um, exhibit these distracted uh, tendencies or these distraction tendencies that might upend or harm somebody being pulled down. I made allusions to it earlier. You know, you want to be able to take a dog out or leave and not worry as I'm thinking about what I'm going to be cooking for dinner that my dog will suddenly, uh, you know, bolt and uh, I'm on the ground. So we have to do a good job of making sure that the dog is uh, very manageable and that the situation that you're describing uh, doesn't arise. I will make one more point. We are serving more and more individuals who have retinitis pigmentosa as their cause of sight loss. Very often we'll see that a person isn't applying until he or she is in their 50s or 60s or maybe even beyond. They were more than confident and competent with their cane they may have uh, maybe a drop in confidence and they're thinking now might be the time for a guide dog. And so that's being woven into this whole process about what we're looking for in terms of breeding stock and what are the qualities that we want to see in a dog, whether it has to do with pace or manageability. So I would say that those are other factors that we're looking at in terms of how do we serve uh, maybe an aging uh, population. Lucas just popped on the call. Yes. Yes, he did. I apologize for being late. We had uh, something come up here, but I made it to the tail end and heard Chuck discussing. Uh, <clears throat> it's good to hear hear, hear you, Chuck, uh, discussing you know, the breeding needs and the impact of COVID on, on what the schools are doing. It's, it's just huge. Uh, it, it, but it, it highlights a couple of things for me. One is that, and uh, we're, we're getting very, very few phone calls from people at the moment. Uh, I'm not encouraging you to call. That, that's fine. We're all right with that. But the, uh, <clears throat> the, the point being that people are just not working their dogs very much right now uh, because there, there are no destinations available and no places to go. Um, and work is often happening from home instead of uh, requiring a commute of some type to the office. <clears throat> and that's going to have, uh, as I heard Chuck say, an impact when, when work resumes. It's rather like we in, in the spring, we always get a, a rush of calls in normal times from people who are having squirrel distraction problems, uh, in which they hadn't had all winter, but in the spring, everything comes up. And when, when work actually resumes, when we actually begin to be able to go places and get out on the street and walk, it's going to be quite something. And that, I think, brings up the original topic that I was asked to discuss was about so criterion acceptance, you know, people who, 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 would, who might benefit from the guide dog. And I think 
we're starting to look at a, a changing world and perhaps changing even more as a result of COVID and, and a reliance upon internet for employment and so on and so forth. On the one hand, it may create great opportunities for employment for people with visual impairments because they can, with technological assistance, they can, <coughs> people with visual impairments can compete on a level playing field. On the other hand, that in combination with paratransit, um, limits the amount of exercise and work that a dog will actually get, which means you have to change the breeding requirements for the dogs that you're putting out to be a less higher, high energy dog. And uh, so one of the things I'm always concerned about, and, and I know the other schools as well, is how much work is a dog actually going to get? One component of this is where people choose to live. It's interesting <laughs> That over the years, I've had many opportunities to advise people who are moving from one place to another, for example, from Boston to, uh, let's say, Lexington, Kentucky. And they will say, I'm moving to Lexington. So, well, where you look, where are you going to live? And so I got an apartment. Great. Where's the, where is it? And nowadays you can go on Google Earth or Google Maps and look at that setting. And all of a sudden it becomes quite clear that what seemed like a great and probably is a great apartment lacks access and work opportunities for a dog. So uh, it's a very interesting problem. And I think it's something that the real estate companies really are, are lacking, missing an opportunity uh, to advise, hire mobility specialists, hire people who can ex actually advise on places uh, to live, you know, where people can have access to the things that make daily life a pedestrian activity rather than uh, a vehicular activity. Um, I don't want to take up too much of your time and I would be happy to respond to more questions. Again, I'm very, very apologetic, apologetic about missing the beginning of this, but I'm grateful that I was able to hear Chuck talk for a few minutes. And I'm grateful to you all for giving me the time under the circumstances. Lucas, could you comment a little bit on how seeing eye looks at persons with multiple disabilities who apply. Um, I think that there might be a myth that seeing eye does not work with such individuals. And um, so perhaps you can comment a little on um, some of the people who have been accepted and other yeah. additional disabilities. Yeah, no, sure. We, 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 we do accept people with disabilities, significant hearing loss being one. We have a uh, uh, person in training right now. We are running classes. We're on our third class post-COVID. Uh, we have a gentleman in training right now who actually, uh, when he's not working with his dog, has to work with a walker uh, because of balance issues, severe balance issues as a result of a chemical poisoning. Um, and uh, uh, with a dog, he can walk with a dog and a cane just fine. But if he's not in contact with something like that, he has to use a walker. So yes, we we have uh, people with, with multiple disabilities uh, of, of a variety of types. I have a question for Lucas. This is Carla. I'm interested to know the, uh, the age at which seeing eye will accept, the other, uh, accept applicants. Um, what is your, your lower age that you will consider? That's the normal age that you would uh, allow a, a teenager, for example, to have a dog. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I'm interested in is the level of vision. And actually, um, one of the other people 
touched on the retinitis pigmentosa issues, but um, I'm really interested also in the amount of vision that a person can have to get a dog. You know, it used to always be totally blind or uh, just a little travel vision, but what is it now? Mm -hmm. Uh, Starting with the first question, you know, uh, at, at the lower end of the age range, we will accept people in high school provided a whole bunch of other dominoes fall in a row. Uh, by which I mean that we will not insist on a person's right to bring a dog into a high school against the wishes of the high school and also the full support of the high school administration. So uh, if someone applies to us who's in high school, we will will look at them uh, for a uh, a number of factors. One is how much are they going to be able to work that dog independently? Some people live within a walking distance of a high school. That's a huge plus for us as opposed to someone who's going to get on a school bus, get off a school bus, go into the high school, get on the school bus and come home. Uh, so that's a huge plus for us. And then we, we would interview the person, interview the parents, of course. But then we would also talk to the school and make sure that there was support there because weird things happen in high schools. You get everything from, from freshmen to, to, to more mature seniors, freshmen who are likely to throw bread in front of the dog or try to distract the dog or do silly kid stuff. And we want to be sure that the school is willing to uh, educate and discipline. In other words, do a good job of educating the student body before the student arrives, with the participation of the student after the student arrives, and then discipline as necessary to set the correct tone in the high school for the dog's um, (laughs) safety and and the person's uh, comfort. Um, With all those things in place, we will place a dog with someone who's in high school, probably in junior or senior year, not not in the first two years of high school. I can't recall anyone there in, in juniors uh, or in sophomore or freshman year. We have had 16 and 17 year olds over the last several years who fit all the other criteria. In terms of, vi- <clears throat> I'm glad to answer more questions on that. In terms of vision, uh, you know, the legal blindness in and of itself is not likely to be a requirement that is not likely to meet our requirements. Above that, you know, my experience is, and, and I'll take a first pass at when we get an application of someone with vision, I'll look at that and say, oh, okay, to evaluate. And, and that, that's quite a wide range. The, the people will evaluate for uh, with vision loss is quite a wide range. We don't do it by the numbers in general. Uh, there are exceptions to that at the upper end. Um, but once we, the evaluation is the key part, and what you're looking at there is you're looking at vision, but you're looking at a lot of other things. Of course, all the things you would look at normally for an applicant, for example, environment use, uh, <clears throat> et cetera, et cetera. But you're also looking at what, for lack of a better word, I would call teachability, and also something like self-discipline. Um, in the sense that if you are totally blind, it's relatively easy to follow a dog's movements within a broad framework of paying attention to traffic, for example, and, and working through your, your acoustic environment in, in a safe way. If you are partially sighted, it becomes kind of an intellectual decision. The dog moves to the left. If you're totally blind, you go to the left with the dog. If you're partially sighted, you might say, why is he doing that? I don't see anything up there. And then you start to keep walking the line, and then you go go left. 
uh, eventually, or perhaps you don't, you bump into stuff. So we, we look for the vision is a significant factor, as is the teachability. Of course, we also have a very developed program uh, using partial occlusion uh, throughout the beginning of the training process to help people learn the skills of working with a dog with residual sight that we, we apply uh, when people when people are accepted into the program. And everyone who is accepted into the program with residual vision is told about that progression uh, and, uh, and accept the fact that we may choose to do that to help train them to be effectively, to be effective with their dogs. Does that help? About upper age limits. Um, we don't really have one. Again, I would, it, it's all part of the assessment. Certainly for, for replacing students, I've trained people into their 90s. Um, for, and we, I, I'll tell you a, a quick story. We had a, a, a gentleman who applied to us who was a, a wonderful man. He was in his 90s. And he had been uh, Martin Luther King's personal physician. And uh, typically, uh, he lived in, in Brooklyn at the time. And at the, I didn't, ha- you know, I have to say that, I, honestly, I put a, would have probably just said, this is probably not a good idea. But given what he had been through and his experience, I couldn't do that. And so we worked really hard to make that work. And it didn't. Ultimately, it failed. Uh, as, as I thought it would, but it, it took a lot of extra effort. We were, had him stay in a hotel with his wife local to us while we trained him, and he enjoyed it a great deal, but ultimately said, this was not a good idea. I didn't realize what was involved in this, and, uh, and he went home. So uh, there really is no upper limit. Practically speaking, there is, uh, you know, the people who are, uh, the, the learning speed is I'm, I'm getting getting up there close to 70 myself learning speed is really an issue uh but uh there is no real upper limit the other thing that we've done is for older replacing students we've, we've instituted a program we call the flex program which uh, in which we modify our training protocol because it, although it's a very nice institution people do become exhausted in the training process especially if you're older and you have more limited reserves of energy and so we 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 have modified our program to be able to train people at the upper end of the age range even re- retrain students in a, a in a somewhat less demanding uh structure taking advantage of their experience uh to help them make progress while allowing the bonding to happen that needs to happen between a dog and a person. And our time is up. Thank you so much to Kentuckiana Guide Dog Users for this great program. And we will see you again on the GDUI Juno Report next month. You've been listening to the Juno Report, brought to you by Guide Dog Users Incorporated, a special interest affiliate of the American Council of the Blind. The Juno Report is a monthly audio magazine featuring all things guide dogs, training programs, and items of general interest to guide dog teams. We welcome your feedback, ideas, and suggestions. Get in touch with the Juno Report by emailing junoreport at guidedogusersinc.org. Again, that email address is 
Juno, J-U-N-O, report at guidedogusersinc.org. Until next month, this is Deb Cook-Lewis with the Juno Report saying, be good to your dog.